When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Napoleon, the 2023 film written by David Scarpa and directed by Ridley Scott. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. You think you're so great because you have boats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Cayetos. <laughs> Hi. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about Napoleon. This is the final episode of our Autour Autumn season. Last week, we talked about Prometheus over on Patreon. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and so today we are finishing off the series and rounding out our Ridley Scott Autour examination. Uh, but before we dive into that, so this is the last episode of the season, but like, what does that mean? Where do we go in between seasons? What happens? Well, lots of different things. So we're cooking up cool ideas for the next season. Uh, Home Alone, we're planning to do as a patron exclusive next month for Yay. our holiday season. <laughs> uh, I promised these idiots Princess Bride at some point. So that might be happening maybe in February. So I don't know. So I don't want to promise anything. <clears throat> uh Something we've also talked about is uh, the new season of True Detective is coming out in January with a little Jodie Foster action in there. We've been wanting to talk about True Detective. This might be a cool opportunity for a what we're watching style, a return to our week by week analysis as we're watch the show uh, alongside you guys. So if that's something people are interested in, shout us out on Twitter. Let us know on Patreon and Discord, all the things. Uh, you don't have to pay to join our patreon which is a new thing you can just go to our patreon and follow it and you'll be able to get any of our updates about what's going on and like let us know uh what you guys want to see and if you're interested in true detective so head over to the beyond screenplay patreon there'll be stuff going on there uh and then also if you've been writing as you should have been then we have something kind of cool that i think you should take advantage of trisha Yes. So actually, in case you needed one more reason to join our Patreon, um, I offer a discount to patrons for my screenplay coverage business, um, which I've mentioned here before, but uh, I have a little side hustle where I read screenplays and I write coverage for anyone and everyone who might be interested in my opinion on how to take their script to the next level. Um, I actually used to read for a studio but uh, I prefer working with screenwriters personally. So whenever I have the time, I like to uh, extend this offer to anybody and everybody. Um, screenwriters at all levels, I love to read their writing. So um, this year especially, my family has been affected by the writer's strike um, and the holidays are always slow for other gigs. So if you've got a script or a TV pilot or a play or a development document or a novel or anything really that you'd love some feedback on, I would love to read it. Um, you can find my rates and policies on my website, which is just my name. It's TrishaArand.com. Um, 
And I also have a form there where you can contact me directly and we can talk about how I can help you achieve your goals for your project. Um, and as I said, I offer a discount for our lovely patrons. So yes, uh, go over there if you are interested. Uh, that's treshaarrand.com. Yes. It'd be a fool not to take advantage of this. If you listen to this, you know that Trisha's a smart one. So head <laughs> over there. And like we said, if you are a Beyond the Screen by Patreon, you get a discount. So no excuses. Um, okay. But speaking of fools. Hey. Ah, <laughs> what a segue. Segue. <laughs> um, okay. Let's talk about Napoleon. So uh, I just saw this last night. So my takes are hot. Uh, I saw it with Brian and Alex. That was fun. This movie, I feel like I don't feel anything about this movie, which is kind of interesting. Like I wasn't bored, but I wasn't entertained really either. Like it kind of just didn't do anything for me. There was some part like it was gorgeous and really well shot, but also kind of felt like recycling some imagery at times. The I really enjoyed getting to learn more about Napoleon, but also at the end of the movie, I was like, do I know more about Napoleon? <laughs> so I'm kind of like struggling to figure out like what, what this kind of experience even was, what it want, what the movie wanted me to take away from it. And so that's kind of just my opening statement. Uh, and I'm curious to hear, from you guys. Brian, what did you make of this movie? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something there that resonates with me, which is just sort of like, I didn't hate it, and I, but I wasn't blown away by it. It was just like, okay, that movie was there. Um, you know, expectations are a thing we've talked about already on uh, in this season. What do you want from X filmmaker? What do you expect? And it was hard over the past week or so to avoid the this scuttlebutt around this movie, which was just like not the best reviews. And the big headline that was going around was this movie's way better if you think of it as a comedy. Um, mm. And I think that really helped me going into it because I was just like, you know what? I'm kind of just watching a quirky comedy. And every once in a while, it's like, P.S., this is a Ridley Scott historical epic. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. That's like a fun little bonus that you get. Um, you know, story-wise, I'm I'm glad they focused on just like Napoleon and it's like selfishness. It could have tried to be 50% really serious Ridley Scott epic and then 50% look at this weird little creep. And I kind of appreciated that it was just like 80% look at this weird little creep and then like 20% like, oh, we're going to do some battles and stuff too. Um, and I think that really helped me just kind of get into – I know what I think of as what a Ridley Scott historical epic is, but if I can kind of divorce myself from that and just watch this movie, um, I was weirdly, it reminded me a lot of Barry Lyndon, um, mm -hmm. which weird sort of historical thing that's happening here as in cinema history, not, not history history um, is Kubrick did want to make a Napoleon movie. I actually got to like be in a room at the Kubrick exhibit surrounded by all of his tomes of Napoleonic like history. Um, and he wrote a script and everything. You can find it online. It's weirdly similar. There's like a lot of similar character stuff. The whole scene with his like the, the kid coming in asking for his father's sword. That scene is like in the script, not word for word, but the same scene. Um, but then, and he wanted to use only natural lighting, like candlelight and daylight. 
And then he did, he took all of those things and then he put them into Barry Lyndon when Napoleon wasn't going to happen. And Barry Lyndon is very much look at this weird little creep, the movie, um, <laughs> that also 20% of the time is like a historical epic. So it's really interesting to sort of like having that in my brain to then watch this movie and be like, oh, you know what? I kind of like this movie more because I'm kind of thinking of it as this, again, this sort of quirky comedy. So in those ways, it worked for me. I don't think it all holds together. And like I said, it didn't blow me away in any sort of way that I would want from this kind of movie. Um, but I also am not, <laughs> I'm not mad about it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, Alex, what about you? Yeah, the Barry Lyndon uh, comparison is interesting because I, I kind of hooked into that pretty early in the film that this is this is not Gladiator. This is mm -hmm. more of like a strange Kubrick kind of take on a Napoleon story and, or a Joaquin Phoenix take. <laughs> um, and Weird and Little I, Creep the movie starring yeah, Joaquin exactly. Phoenix. There have been and, many. And I had you know read some of the headlines and saw the kind of X Twitter buzz um, about how there's historians upset about this movie saying it's inaccurate in all these different ways. Uh, they have lukewarm reviews. So I went in not expecting historical accuracy. I didn't go in expecting a great movie. And with those low expectations and not caring about historical accuracy, I was enjoying myself a good amount of the time watching this kind of strange satire of this man, uh, as you say, Brian, also just mixed in with like, oh, here now is a really amazingly executed battle scene, shot gorgeously, amazing visual effects. It, you know, and just throughout the movie, it just looks so good. And there's so much money on screen and just all these big processions and crowd scenes. And, and it's that Ridley Scott thing where everything has like a lot of contrast and texture and, the mise-en-scene is so immaculate and it just is a pleasure to get to see a period piece with this kind of budget and just to, to get to just look at it for this long. Um, that said, like you guys are saying, I also wasn't elevated by it. I was kind of sleepy last night and this movie made me sleepier. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't wake me up. Um, so yeah, it, it, it did leave me feeling a little bit just like, okay, that's, that's that. And I'm, I'm curious what the four hour version is. Is it a radically different movie? Is it just more of the same, which I don't need? Um, I, don't need I don't need this for four hours. But then Kingdom of Heaven, apparently like radical difference between those two cuts. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's a strange movie. I did like I once I locked into what it was, you know, it worked for me sometimes. But as a whole, I was not particularly enthralled. Yeah, I'm very curious about the four hour cut to see what what was cut, because I would imagine they're not going to cut the expensive battle stuff. So did right. they cut other stuff? And that's kind of the stuff I felt like I was missing some of if, right. if it exists. So I'm curious to see that. Trisha, what about you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this movie is really bumpy for me. I just... I don't know. I just think it's such a mess overall. Like I tried to just come to it as cold and like as I could. I basically didn't watch any trailers and I don't know a whole lot about Napoleon. Like I guess I know the broad strokes of the Napoleonic Wars because I've watched a lot of like naval epics about it, um, mostly <laughs> from the British side. But like I 
they do have boats, but <laughs> I just, I just don't understand why, like what the movie is about. Like, what are the themes? Who is the character? What goals does he have? Um, you know, what plans does he make to pursue those goals? Um, it just seems like it's a kind of all over the place. It, it's like sort of a, you're talking about the percentages a second ago, Brian. For me, this is like 30%, you know, amazing war epic. Uh, 30% bizarre romantic melodrama. Mm-hmm. And maybe a 30% political farce but somehow all drier than a Wikipedia article. Um, I just was like, I don't understand what the through line is here. Like, what is this about? Just because it happened doesn't mean you just get to put all these events in order and make them not be about anything. Like, this is a movie I could just read a book about. Like, if I wanted to read a history book, I could just read a history book about it. Like, and especially if you're not going to be historically accurate, change some stuff to make it mean something, please. Um, I, I, wow. Um, I just don't like midway through. I was like, why am I watching this? I don't know what I'm supposed to care about. Um, oddly, this has a lot in common with Prometheus, um, where we talked about character motivations when we were talking about Prometheus. And I don't know what anybody's motivations are in any of these scenes at all. It feels like just a bunch of people do a bunch of stuff without any clear reasons why. Except the battles, because I know why people are wanting to win a battle um, or not die or whatever. That seems very obvious to me. But a lot of the scenes with like interpersonal things, I don't, it's really hard to track with who wants what and why. Um, The length to ideas ratio, I don't feel, (laughs) is quite on as we talked about in Prometheus. Again, maybe the four hour version gives some of these ideas more room to breathe. Um, But they are just, we're not here. Like I said, this feels like three different movies crammed together. and I kind of wish either you had made three movies or just picked one of them. And yeah, there's there are a few other things where I was just like, oddly, this is kind of like Prometheus <laughs> um, in some of its, I don't know, my, my confusion about like what is going on or, or what's happening and why. I think it's really interesting they have those subtitles, which look cool as hell. Um, I'm like, I like those. And I like that you are even putting subtitles of like, here's who this dude is. And He's the king of this country. He's the bishop of whatever. I'm like, great, thanks for the info. I do like that. Um, but then the scene, the scene with that guy in it, or here's a date and a place. I'm like, okay, good. The scene with that thing is a minute long. And then there's another scene and another subtitle. And it's just, we're just skipping forward through time, but I don't know what this previous scene has to do with this next scene. Wow. Anyway, maybe the four-hour version has more connective tissue. Um, maybe the four-hour version is more political farce, and that could be interesting. But I just, there's so much for me that doesn't work about Napoleon. Yeah. As we wrap up our Atour Autumn season, I am so thankful to have had our sponsor, Mubi, here for the journey. Mubi is a streaming service where each and every film is hand-selected by expert curators who are passionate about elevating great cinema. 
From iconic directors to emerging auteurs from all around the world, there's always something new to discover. And here to tell you about a cool series that Movie has going on right now is our very own Trisha Rand. Yeah, so very exciting for me. One of my favorite actresses, Adele Exarchopoulos, a wonderful French actress. They're doing a series on her right now. So they have six of her movies. I've actually talked about a couple of them on the show before. A movie named Sybil, I know I mentioned. There's another movie called Zero F's Given. Uh, It's one of my favorites. And uh, she has a newer-ish film that was out at Sundance last year that I caught called Passages that I really enjoyed, as well as some of her older films like Blue is the Warmest Color and The Five Devils. Just, she's so magnetic and wonderful to watch. And uh, I'm so pleased that movie is sharing her movies with everybody like i just i can't praise her enough so definitely go check those out thanks yes well and with a 30-day free trial you can experience movies library of films for yourself and by signing up you're also supporting beyond the screenplay and helping us continue to make new episodes so why not try movie for free today just visit movie.com slash beyond the screenplay to start your free trial and discover a world of great cinema that's mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, the Prometheus comparison is interesting because in the same way Prometheus felt like nothing had enough time to sit or affect the characters before we were on to the next scene. Very disjointed feeling. Same thing in this movie, like get what you're talking about, just skipping ahead to the next battle. No context for like how we got to this point and mm-hmm. what the geopolitical thing is that's being fought over. It's just, Oh, we're already here. Okay. It's happening. Oh, onto the next thing. And, and just like in Prometheus, it's very disorienting to make those jumps and to not know why we are here. Yeah. I almost found myself watching two. speaking of two different movies. Like remember when Ridley Scott directed, house of gucci and last duel at the same in the same year this felt like <laughs> yeah. what if he directed them at the same time in the <laughs> right. same movie um but yeah for me it was almost like the more i got tuned in to just the like napoleon and like josephine of it all the more that when it went to political stuff i was just like whatever <laughs> i'm just fine i'm just watching like stuff happen um which is not a good thing obviously but it for some reason was able to like make me just kind of I'm like generally not good at honing in on just battle plans and stuff anyway. So I think mm-hmm. there was a part of me that was just like, just don't just, just d- try to feel it. Don't, don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Ridley Scott was expecting me to know more about Napoleon than I do. Mm. And I like, again, I, I guess I probably know more than most people, but I was still just like, okay, there's so much missing information from the actual text of the movie. Um, and maybe again, that's in the four hour version, but it's, it's pretty rough, I think to watch it theatrically. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause I feel like after watching this, I, what I know about Napoleon is that he was good at battles until he wasn't. And also some of the time he was walking Phoenix and like, I don't feel like that's actually <laughs> like has increased my total knowledge. The, the Josephine plot line is interesting. And, and I think here again, comparison to Prometheus, like I think in some ways this movie is too good for itself or like in these sort of three different movies it's trying to be it's really good at 
it when it's trying to be those movies, I feel. But like the the combination of those three isn't working. And so I wanted to be wrapped up in the Napoleon and Josephine storyline. There's a Vanessa Kirby happening. Like I oh, want to yeah. be like all like, let's focus on that. She's great. I want to. But heard that arc was kind of weird. And again, with like the character motivation thing, like we get kind of enough early on to sort of put together why she might be into Napoleon. But then it's sort of, I found myself puzzling a lot of like, what does she really feel? What is she really after? But not in the good way. And kind of similarly with the battle things, I, there were times, you know, I kind of like that it just drops you into the revolution and there goes Marie Antoinette's head and like, all right, we're doing this thing. But then there isn't the the dominoes cause and effect for me to follow of why Napoleon's now fighting these people at this on this corner of the globe. And so then I wasn't invested in the battles in a way that I felt I should have been. Kind of like you said earlier, Trisha, I wasn't sure like, what am I supposed to care about? Who am I supposed to care about right now? I care about these men that are dying. That's awful and bad. And I definitely get war is bad. I feel like it makes that very clear over and over and over again. But I wasn't following the connective tissue of that. And then Napoleon as a character, like I said, I don't really understand the psychology of him in any kind of clear way that I can like grab a hold of and like figure out how I feel about it. I feel like I'm just kind of puzzling as to why he makes weird noises when he wants to have sex with Vanessa Kirby sometimes. <laughs> like, like those moments felt like they were out of a different movie than other moments. And so it's just really favorite. interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Yeah. One of the favorite in their scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally. But like, yeah. Anyway, so just like a lot of really cool pieces that didn't plug in together for me. Um, and expectations is, is interesting too. I'm curious to return to that potentially in a minute. Yeah. Well, when we talked about Prometheus, we talked about the character of David in that movie, who's Michael Fassbender's character. He's an android and he does a bunch of different stuff in that movie. Um, and I, I feel like I was just watching a, a similar situation where I don't know how Ridley Scott feels about David. And I don't know how Ridley Scott feels about Napoleon. Like, mm. there are times when I'm like, Ridley Scott despises Napoleon, right? Like, Ridley Scott really wants to highlight the cost of his poor decision making or his lust for power or his arrogance. Um I feel like those things are really on display, but then there are other times um, when the battles are really going and Napoleon's really good at them. And I'm just like, I think that Ridley Scott maybe admires Napoleon or, but I, I don't know um, because I can't track with the character arc. And therefore I also can't track with the themes. So I don't know why anyone is doing anything. Um, you know, it's interesting, the last, uh, you know, words on the screen at the end of the movie where he's like, the Napoleon's last words were France, army, Josephine. 
And I was like, I saw that movie. Like, <laughs> the, <laughs> yep, those are the three movies that I just saw. Um, but I don't know how they interrelate thematically, right? Those are just three different things that Napoleon did a lot. And I did. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think there, there's something I realized this is like a central thing. This could have been called like anti-hero autumn almost because we've had so mm-hmm. many totally. anti-heroes and Napoleon's interesting because he's an anti-hero and he's also an anti-hero, like hero, whatever you think of that word being not just like, what do you think of like a traditional protagonist of your movie? But like, what is a hero? And like, what is he? Um, but I think it's sort of like these two separate things we've talked about this all the way back to like social network which is like how do you feel about this character as a human being and also separately are they like good at their job right and so we talk about like the killer and killers of flower moon he's kind of like bad at both um and uh and then this is like a movie where i feel like for me you know First of all, it's a movie about Napoleon, so it's not like really Scott's making like he loves Napoleon. I'd, I'd never expected to be getting that movie, right? Um, but I did feel like other than when it was here is him doing his job, then it's like, look how good he is, look how smart he is, da da da. And then it's here's him as a human being it was just like, look at this toilet water with shoes, right? Like it was just like complete, <laughs> just like mess of a person. But I was also able to to sink into that <laughs> toilet water. Um, but <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep digging. Oh keep God. digging. Um, sometimes they say things and then I hear them. Um, but, uh, but no, point being uh, that like I'm kind of – I kind of like when a movie is just like, look at this person. He sucks, right? Because then I'm able to just kind of be like okay with that um, and just be like, yeah, I want him to now suffer and I want him to like lose everything that he cared about and I want him to be exiled. And But then that, Trisha, you were saying it, like the last thing is that like Josephine is like, okay, but you just told me like all the deaths that he caused. But then he's like, oh, but I like was in love. And it's like, wait a minute. Like I kind of thought like that was when the movie was doing its final like F you. And then it kind of did a little like, isn't that sweet at the moment? So it just, again, yeah. Like I felt like I was able to, to hone into it, but then there were definitely times where it was kind of being like, nah, maybe I'm not so sure. Yeah. The, the listing of the casualties at the end was really interesting because that was a sign to me of theme potentially. And I think one thing that comes through in, you know, one of the three movies here is that political farce, aspect which is you know people in power being you know deeply unimpressive in their actual personalities and just kind of silly and sad and goofy and weird but you know them being in power can result in just mass suffering and death and look how crazy this is basically you know emperors and kings and presidents and just how people can ascend to these heights and yet be these completely flawed, cringe-worthy human beings. And so I think the movie, I did enjoy that aspect of the movie, once again, if it had committed to being a farce, a satire in its entirety, that could have been an interesting Napoleon movie. Just right. it's about this, you know, people talk about Napoleon syndrome as a personality you know, problem. And it's almost this is like the movie about that, essentially. Um 
But then, as you said, then it ends with Josephine. And it does, the movie's trying to tell me that there's something really meaningful here in their relationship, that this is being told through the lens of their story, of their meeting, of their romance. And I just, I don't understand why, like, why is this the lens for this movie? And what did it actually mean? How did it inform that political farce or his battles? I, I don't, I don't see any connection there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of two thoughts. The strongest connection that I remember is when the movie kind of makes it feel like he left Egypt to go check on Josephine because she was having an affair. Which is one of the historical inaccuracies I read about. Right, exactly. Wow. That's what okay. I was going to say. They, right. ran of, they ran out of supplies. Right. And they've <laughs> like lost. So like, yeah, so that's just really interesting. Thinking about these title cards, part of me is like, put it at the beginning, like would that have helped frame things a little mm. bit, you know, because the thought I had when that, you know, Army Paris, Josephine was obviously Rosebud. And, right. you know, that Very is, yeah, like a movie where like that's how the movie opens with the death of Citizen Kane and like Rosebud, what does it mean? And that's the question that somebody's trying to answer throughout mm. that movie. So that's the question that's in our mind the whole time and sort of letting it's like a, a well of meaning we can go back to and like check on and, and pull from. I don't know that would have fixed anything necessarily, but I feel like having something like that, like when the final frames of your movie feel like they were the meaning that should have been there at the whole time, you know, something is wrong. And so I'd be mm. curious to see what switching that around or, or, doing the Napoleon death at the top, what would that have changed? What would that have felt like? It's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. I think part of the hollowness for me of this thematically has to do with the lack of like subplot or supporting character, really. Mm. Um, like who are the supporting characters? There's a few guys we see around him, you know, fairly often, but they don't seem to have real agency, right? They don't really seem like they are doing anything that's not at his direction or really pushing or pulling him in any direction or offering another take on the theme. Um, no one is trying to like really speak into what's happening in his personal life other than, you know, people who are pressuring him eventually to get a divorce. But like, I'm hard pressed to remember the name of any other characters other than Napoleon and Josephine. Um, and I think that that's a little bit of a problem uh, because if I'm just thinking about ways to create that uh, meaning that you're talking about, Michael, where it's like, if it's about the cost of war or like the cost of this one person's ego, great. I That's a movie that's worth exploring. Um, but who's getting harmed that is a name character that I know that has, you know, something going on in their lives that I care about. It would be really meaningful if there was a supporting character close to Napoleon who paid a very high price by the end of the movie. Um, or just, I, I mean, it's like the dumb way to do it, you know, and you see it in every war movie, but it's like the 17 the year old kid. And here he is, he signed up cause he like worships the general. And then like that guy's gonna for sure die. But war is bad and this is who pays the price. And 
I mean, I literally needed something like that because the carnage on the battlefield is horrific in this movie, but it becomes so much that it's, and it's only in those scenes and it never touches Napoleon, but it also never touches me. And so I'm just kind of like, except for that one horse, RIP. Um, yeah, seriously. Gets exploded right out the gate. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Grim. Anyway, but like <laughs> that's that's the death that I can remember the most in, from mm. this movie. You know what I mean? I wish there was a more meaningful death of one person because we care about the one. It's easier for us as audience members to care more about that like one life that was that character that we knew. And that's just kind of the way movies work. It's interesting thing about the battle scenes. They did function for me almost totally on just a spectacle aesthetic level. Like I wasn't feeling uh, emotional about them. It, my emotions were actually more just filmmaking thrills of just, oh, how well executed this moment is, how gorgeous this shot is, how cool this looks the, falling through the ice and the music right now. Austerlitz is so cool. It was all about that stuff, but it wasn't about storytelling uh, emotions triggered by storytelling it was emotions triggered by cinematic awesomeness mm -hmm. um and so yeah the Ridley Scott can like get away with a lot in some ways because he is just so good at the craft that I am just enjoying watching images with sound but at some point yeah you, you start to get sleepy when the story is not giving you anything it's just spectacle just images yeah, I think a cool thing, something I think about with battle scenes, I think I've talked about it before, is um, when when I just understand what the hell's going on in the battle is nice, you know, because right. there and Ridley Scott is guilty of this sometimes where I'm just like, that's a lot of really close up shots of people getting stabbed with things. And the first battle in the dark, like at that fort for the first, you know, besides the horse exploding, I couldn't follow a lot of the action in that one because it was so dark. Sure. Um, but like, at least it's like all we have is just a wall and they're trying to get to that wall. They're trying to get up right. that wall. You know, like a lot of the battle scenes are they actually kind of short in this movie, I think compared to a lot of what we think of as, and the ice is probably the best example of just like, we understand the geography of what's yeah. happening. We understand what's happening. We are learning what's going on just as the, the enemy is learning what's going on. And then the plan is executed, you know? And I don't know if I think all the battle scenes worked that way, but I feel like in general, I didn't feel um, I felt very seated uh, as I was watching them just going like, oh, yeah, I understand the geography of this place. I understand where people are. I understand when the big turning points are happening and stuff. But to the point you guys were just making, like that just felt so separate to me from the actual movie that the rest of the movie was. So it was just like time out Napoleon movie. We're going to go do this very well executed battle scene where I understand the sort of plot points that are happening and I understand the geography of it all. And then we're going to get back to the actual movie that you've been watching this whole time. So those things felt very, and as you were saying, Trisha, if we actually had that, that, you know, supporting character who was doing some of that work, then we're maybe paying attention to them in the battle and we're seeing what they're doing. Right. There's something about not having more supporting characters that helped me focus on Napoleon and Josephine in this movie. So I didn't want just like more like random supporting characters, but like one, as you were saying, Trisha, like one major character who, I am like following the entire time and I'm with him and he's like a confidant to Napoleon and then tragic death, whatever, like that certainly would have done a lot of work to connect the Napoleon story and the 
like the battle sequence element to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I have the same problem with the Napoleon Josephine plot line. Like when Josephine dies, her daughter is there. And then her daughter, like, I was like, oh, you? I, okay, you haven't been in 90% of this movie. I wanted to feel the emotion, like the loss of Josephine, but there were no supporting characters in that storyline that I, that were like an audience surrogate for me to like track with what I'm supposed to be feeling about anything that was happening in that storyline. And there were plenty of people that could have been there, like Josephine's kids, for example, could have been there. Um, And I, for some reason, they just like are so left by the wayside. Yeah. Four hour cut. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody tell me how it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think so one of the thoughts I was having is when doing historical drama, like what is your responsibility to historical accuracy? What can you take liberties with? What should you, what should you not, etc. And so it is puzzling as we've said that this movie isn't 100% historically accurate but also feels like it's committing really hard to to certain things and so there are strategies that you can do like conflate a bunch of characters into a single character Mm -hmm. that is supposed to represent an idea like that's why you have characters in your movies is they represent a theme an idea and what happens to them is like a statement about whatever you're trying to talk about and so it's interesting that this movie doesn't do that at all. Or, well, I mean, I guess I, I don't know that, but I, I didn't feel like it was taking liberties with things in a way that would help me understand. And it almost felt uh, like stubbornly committed to the reality of other things to the point of like, this is when this thing happened. And so we're going to show it to you now, even if it's not the most dramatically compelling or meaning-filled event, but that's like when it happened in the timeline. And so I'm sure that's a very hard thing to dial in. We talked about hidden figures and how I feel like that's a movie that took liberties, but also told the story, had emotion. I knew what the filmmaker wanted me to feel by the end of it. And I was interested enough to go and like research the history like myself. I was interested enough to go and watch a crash course history video about Napoleon after this. So I guess like that succeeded. But in watching that, I also found things that were historically accurate that were also way more interesting and had meaning that were part of Napoleon's story Mm -hmm. that were absent from this movie. So all of that, it's just a, a hard thing I'm sure to navigate when creating something like this. But yeah, what do you guys think? One what's the right call to make or what, where should you err when doing something like this? Very simple question with a very simple answer. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> now I know there was like, there was a, a headline that was like, uh, Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott's been like very James Cameron in some of his interviews, right. Yep. Where he's just like, he's like, screw you guys. We made alien. Um, but like he, he's just like, oh yeah, we just we, we had them firing cannons at the pyramids. I don't know if it happened. It was just a quick way to say we took Egypt, and it's like, okay, like that's, that's sure, but it's kind of but a big like, deal. That's like, yeah, yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> like that's I, but so I feel insane like it, that I assumed that had to be real because it's sure. too absurd to not be real. Right, exactly. Yeah. 
And I, and I feel like it's it's almost, you know, we talked about this a little. Um, I'm actually going to talk about Priscilla later in the lesson where we, we talked about sort of historical movies that are trying to be historical and then historical movies that are trying to be really historical fiction. Like here's sort of an idea of a person and we're kind of going to like paint a picture with that. Um, and I feel like Napoleon is trying to be both those things. And that's where it sort of fails is it's trying to be weird little creep the movie which is just like fun goofy kind of comedy and like character study sort of thing and then it's trying to be here's where these things happen and it's like shooting cannons at the pyramids is totally fine for your quirky comedy version of this right but it's maybe not totally fine for your here's the historical thing um which got me thinking about accents which you've heard me talking about before. <laughs> Gather around, kids. It's time for Brian, Uncle Brian's uh, annual accent uh, autopsy to, to keep the alliteration alive. Um, but like, I was just thinking about, the, I, I'm always fascinated by the choices that people make when they are doing accents or basically portraying characters who are non-American, non-English speaking characters in movies. Um, and like where, where do you kind of draw the line between accuracy and catering to a wider audience? So like the most accurate thing you can do is hire people who are from that nation and speak that language and they are speaking that language and you have subtitles on screen, right? That is terrible for appealing to a wider audience. So I understand that's really not an option for most movies. Um, so then the next option down is all the rest of the options are everyone's going to speak English, right? One version is they speak English, but with foreign accents. And if you've seen the trailer for Ferrari, it's a lot of Italian people talking to each other and presumably <laughs> Italian, but they're talking in Italian accents. And it's like, it's so strange. It's like, okay, I get your Italian, but you're speaking English in Italian accents. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of like, it can be better for immersion or it could be like way worse for immersion. Cause I'm just going like, why are these actors talking that way? Right. Um, another option is English, but with consistent accents, usually it's, it's a British accent, um, where it's good for consistency, just, okay. You're telling me all these Germans are German, but they're all speaking English. Fine. Right. Hunt for Red October, like got away with it. Um, and, uh, but then of course it can be distracting if the actors aren't that accent. So like last duel is a bunch of American actors doing British accents to play French characters. It was like, but, <laughs> but why, why, why are all, why are these all th the things happening? Um, I've mentioned Troy before, and I also was thinking of, um, Troy. yeah, Troy is like, everyone has their own accent except for Brad Pitt, who's doing like whatever accent he's doing. And then the other version is everyone gets to keep their own accent. Um, a weird version of this is Valkyrie, where Tom Cruise is, right. they're all Germans, yeah. Tom Cruise is doing a Tom Cruise accent, and everyone else is like a European actor doing their own accent. So it's just like he stands out. Um, and so there's like, there's kind, there's something nice, I think, about being like, you know what, everyone's just doing their own accent, because we know they're not, we know that they're playing these other characters, they're just doing their own accent. Um, there is something nice about that, but it's like the worst for just actually trying to do any kind, anything consistent, right? Meanwhile, Napoleon. Um, the French are mostly English and European actors doing English accents. Their mortal enemies, the English, are mostly English and European <laughs> actors doing English yeah, right, actors right. doing English accents. Uh, the Russians, however, are doing Russian accents, so they get an accent. Um, 
And then there's one scene where two characters who are maybe German talk, but they're subtitles. Mm-hmm. So like the subtitles suggest that every the rest of the movie, everyone is speaking the same language, which very clearly isn't the case because there are French people talking to each other and there are English people talking to each other. But one scene has subtitles, which means... And then at the center of it all, we have Joaquin Phoenix mumbling his just Joaquin Phoenix like way through the movie. And this should drive me crazy, but like Ridley Scott is not, I think, interested in consistency, you know? So he is, he just makes a choice. And a lot of these choices are choices that were made 40 years ago and were fine. And then he's like still making them today. Um, But, but so like, there's no consistency here with the accents. It's all just sort of muddy, but there is something weird. There is something weirdly like appropriate about Joaquin Phoenix being like, just sounding less noble than everyone else. Everyone else is like, um, sir, my, my, my liege, I, 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 I pray you consider this treaty. And he's like, no, I don't want to, you know, it's like <laughs> for his character, there's actually something kind of fun about the fact that he's just like this, like mumbly American <laughs> amidst a bunch of other people who don't have that accent. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very strange thing. And it's a, it's an unanswerable question. I think, how do you deal with the fact that like all of these, all of like those examples I gave are just like, none of them are great. I will say that I normally am an ignorant audience member that doesn't notice any of that. But in this movie, I noticed it, Mm -hmm. which is just really interesting that like for some reason, whether it's as you called out, that it's literally about the French being upset at the British, but the French are all British. Like (laughs) it, it like threw me and was distracting for me. Uh, so just it, it it's a really interesting thing. And I think you covered all of the different permutations of it and why uh, it's something that is worth considering, at least, so you can mm-hmm. make a informed decision when you decide. There's been a lot of French critics of this movie, not only for the historical inaccuracies, but I imagine there's probably a little bit of an irksome thing with, yeah, all the British accents the American mumbler as, you know, Napoleon, um, <laughs> this is your history. And this is how uh, America, you know, a, or slash a British director are presenting it. <laughs> it's probably yeah. pretty annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I'm not going to say that I think Joaquin Phoenix is miscast in this per se, but I, I think that the character of Napoleon is kind of all over the place And so it's really hard for me to praise this performance because there's no character consistency in the writing. And so the performance also feels all over the place to me. Um, Like the whining and the pettiness and the the like childishness is so infuriating most of the time. And he's just a buffoon. Um, But at the same time, we're asked to accept that he's some kind of great leader, right? The scene where he's come back from exile or, like, escaped, and he, like, walks up to the French army, and he's like, I miss fighting with you all on the battlefield, and, like, join me, and we're going to march this way. They all, like, put down their weapons, and they're like, yes, we are marching with you, great leader. Um there's like no been done, no narrative work to support that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is not about leadership in the text. I wish it were, that'd be interesting. Um, but it's not. And so there's, there's instead a lot of, uh, like I said, it just all feels sort of erratic. 
Um, and Joaquin Phoenix's performance, I think, to me, doesn't work or like doesn't help any of that. His accent is a problem. The language is a problem. Um, I think we talked about this on a Q&A one time, but like syntax and grammar are a big part of creating a story world. So even if you're going to have all your characters speaking English, they need to be speaking some kind of consistent version of English um, from whatever time period. Like if you want to have them, they don't have to be speaking Napoleonic Wars English, but whatever English they're speaking probably ought to be from one time period. Right. And that means that the grammar and the syntax, the actual construction of the sentences and the vocabulary should be consistent. Um, and this movie does not do that at all. Uh, there, are, there are these weird grammatical things that really just, I mean, really bother me. Uh, that it's like no one would put that together as a phrase until the 21st century. Um, and yet here people are saying it in this time period. And meanwhile, other people are speaking in these and those. It, like it simply uh, just jostles me out of the story world personally. Um, yeah. But to go back to your question, Michael, about historical accuracy, I feel like the language and the accents um, – all have are rolled into that question of like how do you walk this tightrope obviously you're trying to make a movie but this stuff really happened these people really lived um admittedly like a while ago now right none of them are still alive this isn't like something that happened in the early aughts which is a different you know like it's not social network where it's like everyone is still alive um but i, I do think that's a valid question my answer for it is one that won't surprise any of you, which is you should probably serve the story and the theme, whatever you choose. And so maybe you should know what your movie's about um, or which movie you're trying to make and then make every decision fall in line after that decision. Uh, and I really wish that uh, I had a clearer sense of what that was for this movie so I could understand how everything dovetails in with whatever theme this is about, supposedly. Yeah. Why do I feel scolded after that? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, why don't we move into lessons and what lessons we're going to take away from Napoleon and kind of carry this over to there. Um, thinking about the Ridley Scott-ness of it all, and as you were saying earlier, Alex, like these battle scenes are immaculate, clearly extremely well planned to manage that level of chaos and have it be communicated clearly takes an insane attention to detail and commitment, which is really, really impressive. And so it's all the weirder to me that Ridley Scott can be so detail oriented and so particular about certain aspects of the film and not in these other arenas. Like you were just detailing there, Trisha, or like you were saying, Brian, with the accents, like there's, parts of the movie making experience that it seems like he has this masterful hold of and other parts that it sort of feels like he lets it do what it wants to do. And that juxtaposition has created some of the best movies of all time, but I feel like has also created some of these weird experiences like Prometheus, like this for me. Um, Real and quick. yeah, it's also something we talked about with Mank which was mm -hmm. like Fincher saying like, I want to make something that feels so true to life, except it's going to be in like a modern aspect ratio and it's going to be digital, you know, or it's just sort of like, well, 
choose one, like either do one or the other. And I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of that happening. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I feel like there, there are a lot of similarities, I think with Fincher and, and I kind of feel this way about kind of a late Lee Fincher movies, recent Fincher movies. Um, I kind of keep coming back to this thing of like, I want you to tell your story. And I feel like sometimes auteurs can maybe outsmart themselves or think themselves out of a compelling experience. I think earlier in the episode, I forget who was saying this, but maybe it was you, Trisha, like, I don't know how Ridley Scott feels about Napoleon. Like, does he admire Napoleon? Does he think he's a, a creep? Like, what is it? And I think it's interesting to have complex feelings about a character and to render that complexity on the screen. But, and again, this might be projecting, it feels... I think you have to do work and tell that story. I think you can't just put those pieces right. in a movie and expect that to come out. Like you can't just put me in a room with cool things. Like that's, that's a museum. That's not a movie. Like that's fun. Like <laughs> museums are really neat, but like I want to be told a story. And so I think, yeah, I think there's probably a, a fear of being, I don't know, too handholdy or or saccharine or or i don't know it's like not cool to like go hard and be earnest about the thing but like go hard and be earnest about the thing if you're going to tell the story and you're going to spend all this money you're going to do all this like try to make me feel a thing like you're good at that so don't be afraid of that and i think that's the job of the director and the auteur at the end of the day is tell your story Trisha, what's your lesson? My lesson is horseback riding. It's not actually my lesson, but there's some amazing horseback riding in this scene. <laughs> yeah. The scene in Waterloo where the, the riders have the like extra horse because they're messengers and they have to like ride through the night and ride extra fast or whatever. And then he like jumps from the moving horse onto the other moving mm. horse. It's like, this is what I want from my historical epic. Like, give me all the horseback riding action. I love it. Ah, the stunts are so good. The horseback stunts are so good. Um, uh, yeah, that almost makes it worth the price of admission for me. Um, but actually, my lesson has to do just with, um, I don't know, it goes back to character motivations, but I especially want to talk about Josephine. Um, I think the movie is trying at various points to make me feel like Napoleon really did care about France or something, um, where like the central conflict in his relationship with Josephine is that she can't give him an heir and France demands that he has a child. And so for that reason, he's going to divorce the love of his life despite their weird relationship and all of the conflicts that they've had over the years. Uh, and that seems to be the arc of that relationship because France is his priority. Um, cool. Great. But we lose Josephine in that, right? Like, I feel like when it starts, we kind of have, as you mentioned, Michael, some sense of who Josephine is, right? She's willing to, uh, like sort of, I don't know, do things that are maybe morally questionable to survive, right? We see that she made it through the revolution, even though she was sort of uh, a member of the aristocracy. And she is kind of a little bit conniving in the way that she like goes after Napoleon and marries him and 
there's a sense of like a survivor about her um, and this sort of inner strength. But when we get into their relationship and like it starts to get into the like grit of the conflict of she can't provide him with an heir. Um, I don't know how she feels about being queen. Does she care about the power aspect? Is that why she married Napoleon in the first place? I don't know. Um, and then it goes to the divorce and then she's in exile. I, there's simply not enough like motivation work done for that character of Josephine for me to feel anything about what, like, I don't know what Vanessa Kirby is playing. <laughs> like she's an amazing actress. I love her. I don't know what she's playing in most of these scenes. Like, is she trying to rattle him, you know, in some of these scenes where she's sniping at him in front of their guests or vice versa, um, where she's like indulging him in the bedroom or not? Like, I just, I don't know what angles she's playing because I don't understand her motivations. One interesting thing would be, does she also really care about France? Like at the end of the day, does she see herself as a public servant or take her role as a queen empress? Does she take that seriously? And she's willing to like take herself out of the picture for the good of the nation. That would be interesting. Um, but again, that's kind of not in the text. So it makes me sad for that character because she's the second lead of this movie. and she gets even more lost. Like the themes and the character arcs and the motivations are muddy everywhere. But with her, as the movie goes along and she becomes even more sort of sidelined, I feel like we know less and less about her in every given scene as like until the end where she's like, I just want you guys to be happy. Here's this baby. You are a miracle child of France. We have sacrificed so much for you to be here. And I'm like, why? <laughs> So anyway, motivations, you should have them. Uh, that's my lesson. Yeah. And I think that helps. I mean, because it feels like there's so much subtext happening and maybe that's just Vanessa Kirby being amazing where I'm like, you are thinking things and there's something maybe happening Maybe she inside. knows what she's playing, but right. I don't. <laughs> I wish I had some insight into what any of this means. And like, yeah, you have to have those pieces there for us to connect with that great acting and that subtext and understand what it means. And that was yeah, lacking for me as well. Brian, what's your lesson? My lesson's about the passage of time and how that can feel disorienting or not in a movie. And I, I think that um, I said in Priscilla um, that even though sometimes years are going by, you never feel like the rug's been pulled out from under you because the central conflict is always there and you're only focusing on a few central characters. And I actually felt that way with this movie too. Um, for the most part, we we've talked about how there are times where I don't know what this plot thing is, or I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why they're here, but I did feel like there were times in this movie where it's just like, anyway, five years later, anyway, like this kid's a teenager now, but I was just like, yeah, but I'm always, there's like two characters in this movie and I'm always focused on them. So I think that like that at least was helpful for me, um, where it just felt like I was watching one, one slightly small story that was told in this huge epic multi-year way. Um, and for all the reasons we've said, it's not, it's not clear what that small story is all the time, but I, I didn't feel, I think, I think the thing I'm getting at is that there are other movies where, um, every time there's like a time jump 
it's like now we're in a new location and there are new other like supporting characters and there's a new dramatic question and there's a new plot thing happening over here. And I'm just like, I'm like so tired now because I have to like keep re-upping my investment in this movie every time that there's a time jump. And I think something that both Priscilla and Napoleon did pretty well was I didn't even feel the time jumps. I understood they were happening partially because both those movies have kids who like age. So obviously that is like just a very easy way to say, here's how much time has passed since like that kid was born. Um, but, uh, but just ultimately because Priscilla was more focused than Napoleon was focused in terms of what the, what the hell's actually going on. But in both those movies, because I was just like watching a fairly small character story, the time jumps felt like they were, super organic and didn't feel like they were like throwing me off the bucking Bronco every time they happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really a good call out. And I think it's, you know, I thought I was having, this is a long movie. It's not as long as killers of the flower moon, but it's a long movie, but it didn't feel as long as killers of the mm-hmm. flower moon felt. And I think part of that might be kind of what you're calling out that there, there wasn't a, yeah, you don't get thrown off the bucking bronco, like you said, and have to like put new mental energy into like, okay, gotta grab a hold of this new thing. It did feel like it was kind of just continuing its trajectory, start to finish in a way that was helped. I think, Alex, what's your lesson? Yeah, kind of going back to what we're talking about with you know, how do you do historical fiction? How do you compress characters or compress ideas into people or scenes? And, you know, something that we're talking about, the time jumps, there's also a jumpiness just with scene to scene to scene, even without big time jumps in this movie for me, where I don't feel like a lot of the scenes in this movie are scenes. <laughs> if a scene is a, a sequence in which somebody walks into a room and there's a one you know, we're on one end of the polarity of, you know, they want something, the person doesn't want that thing. And by the end, something's changed and their relationship has evolved. There's so many scenes with Napoleon Josephine where he walks into the room, something kind of quirky happens or weird happens. And then the scene's over next scene. And I don't know what changed. I don't know what evolved. I don't know who feels what about what. And it made me think about another historical drama um that i'm watching right now which is the new season of the crown um and the crown i think is a great example of you know we we don't know what went on behind closed doors in the in the royals you know personal lives but we do know these broad strokes of you know the last century of the royal family and what changed in the society what changed in within their family dynamics and the big public dramas that occurred around them and you can take those things and then craft a scene that kind of embodies all those things and and things can be very um meaningful every scene can be very meaningful if you approach historical fiction that way. And I think a great example in the first episode of the new season, um, there's a scene where Prince Charles goes to visit the queen to ask her to come to his partner, Camilla's birthday party as a, as a way to give Camilla some legitimacy in the wake of his divorce with Diana. And it's just, it's just a really good scene where every part of the scene is telling us kind of thematic story about this parent-child relationship he's made to wait outside the door as like anybody else would he's not given any special treatment as her son 
when he comes in, she's doting over her dogs and barely looking at him. That's information right there. And every like ounce of that scene is squeezed for meaning. And there is an arc of the scene and a change by the end. And it just, it, it just feels really good when every scene is that. And it feels really disorienting when every scene is not that, which is, which is what Napoleon felt like to me, which is just all these snippets, all these jumpy snippets that are kind of interesting or quirky or funny in their own right. But where's the meaning? Where's the change? Where's the compression of all this historical information onto a couple of characters in a room, you know, going on an arc with each other? Um, so Napoleon did not do that for me. Crown does do that for me. And first part of season six, the final season, is currently streaming on Netflix and very, very well done, in my opinion. Also gorgeously shot and just, yeah, historical fiction done right. Uh, mm -hmm. the crown nice. i can't wait i haven't started <laughs> watching it yet i'm so excited yeah yeah you're making me think of um this thinking like inglorious bastards and the killer two movies where the movie is basically like here's five 20 minute scenes right where like every scene is a short film that like has a complete thing to it versus ridley scott and i want to say christopher nolan who do a lot of just kind of like, here's two people in a room. They're going to say two lines to each other. Meanwhile, over across town, here's two more people and they're going to say some stuff. And eventually it's all going to pan out. And when that's done, well, it's the dark night, you know, but when it's not, it's just, it's very confusing. It's very off-putting. And I definitely felt that I felt it less in like the second half of Napoleon, but I felt it a lot in the first I don't know, 40 minutes or so as I was getting settled in where I was just like, that wasn't a scene. You just showed me a building yeah. and a person. And like, meanwhile, five years later, here's another building. Like, wait, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like good lessons have come from this movie, but also the season. And, you know, like you're saying, Trisha, like, what's the movie about? What are the themes? Like you're saying, Alex, what does it mean? Like, tell a story. Like, we're here. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for, anyway. I don't know. Just other people like other people stuff criticize too. history for being just like a list of names and dates. And actually, history is an incredibly powerful story if you can look at it as a story. And then you have Napoleon, which is just a list of names and dates <laughs> <laughs> and cool action in between. <laughs> okay, and true. And horseback creep. riding and weird little creep scenes, <laughs> <laughs> snippets of scenes. And Vanessa Kirby trying to hold it all. Um, all right. Well, so we know what Alex has been watching recently. Brian, what have you been watching recently? I have been watching less than normal because I've been reading, um, and I which I just finished a couple hours ago, uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, um, which was a book that I had seen recommended a lot when it came out. Um, it, it's about a video game industry, so I think I saw it on like gaming Twitter. Um, I had it sitting on my wish list for the longest time. I was at a party three weeks ago, and my friend said, oh, have you read this book? And I said, oh, no, but I've been meaning to. I mean, you know what? I'm going to order it. And then between the time I ordered it and when it came two days later, a f one of my best friends texted me and said, have you read this book? And I was like, okay, well, it's, it's coming, and I'm going to read it. Uh, so I read it over the past two weeks. Um, it's uh, about a boy and a girl who meet when they're 11 and 12 and connect over video games. 
And then later when they're adults, they kind of reconnect and they start a video game company together uh, and it becomes very successful. And But there's always like a tension between them. Sometimes they're not speaking for, you know, months on end. Um, and so it's like a book about interpersonal relationships, but also about creating art with someone, especially someone that you that you care about starting a business with someone that you care about and like what does that look like so there's a lot of interesting themes about all of that kind of stuff um and uh, and i really enjoyed it it's very sweet and it takes some interesting turns both narratively and uh authorially like the way that the story is told sometimes takes some takes some turns which i found really fascinating uh so yeah tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow obviously named after the macbeth soliloquy which is relevant to the story uh, by gabrielle zevin nice sounds cool nice all right. Trisha, what have you been watching? Uh, I'm so happy to share this movie with you guys. I recently watched a film called The Train from 1964. Uh, it's a Burt Lancaster movie. Um, I just, it's a John Frankenheimer directed. Uh, yeah, it's about, um, so I don't know if any of you saw, you guys saw the movie Monuments Men, um, which is a very bad heist movie. Starring and directed by George Clooney yeah. uh, from the aughts, I believe. But it's about a Nazi art train, right? Where and they're like trying to. So the Nazis are trying to move a bunch of priceless art out of Germany. Also, the beginning of Dial of Destiny is sort of about this kind of thing, where it's like the Nazis are trying to steal national treasures from France, um, and people are trying to stop them. But the train has the same plot, but it's a really, really good movie. And uh, Burt Lancaster plays like a railroad man. Like he's sort of the director of this local railroad station. Um, Paul Schofield plays like the Nazi general that's uh, trying to get the train out. Uh, and Jeanne Moreau is like a local um, innkeeper woman who helps Burt Lancaster's character. And it's just this like amazing action thriller, like World War II action thriller set kind of all in a train yard slash on a train and the train's carrying all of these like priceless works of French art and Burt Lancaster and the other railroad men are just trying to stall it basically and keep it from going into Germany where the paintings will never be recovered and, um, but stall it, but not blow it up and not let it get bombed in an air raid and like all this stuff. So they're trying to save it, but also like make it totally immobile using all the tricks and trade of the railroad. Um, so it's kind of a heist movie, but it's also this action movie. Oh God, it rules so hard. Um, yeah, I can't recommend this movie enough. I just had a blast watching it. Burt Lancaster is amazing. I don't know if you've seen a lot of Burt Lancaster movies. Um, first of all, a babe forever, but like did so many of his own stunt slash action in this movie. Like he must've, there's a scene where he's up in a tower um watching a train through a pair of binoculars he runs out of the tower he slides down a ladder you know like probably a 20 foot ladder uh just quickly runs over like jumps onto a moving train and like ducks into the cab it's all one shot clearly burt lancaster just did all of that there's another scene where he's like forging parts for a train engine um and it's all one shot He's like working with a forge and like molten metal and forging train parts. It's awesome. Uh, it's just they really don't make movies like that anymore. Um, it's amazing. 
strong, strong recommend. If you like manly men and large machines foiling Nazi plots, which I really do, uh, the train is here for you. It has sort of a submarine movie vibe to it. Uh, it rules. Nice. I'm sold. Yeah. Yeah, trains are kind of like submarines on land in some ways. Uh, for sure. I wonder... Snowpiercer. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> You're right. wonder what the average like release year for each of our what we're watching <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not giving a challenge necessarily to the certain discord patron but i'd be curious to know if um if well do your that. do your like you know podcast episode that came out 10 days ago count no films only okay oh films only all right films only. what about tv I- I don't think it would significantly change Michael's average. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) It might. Strictly films, it might. I feel like it'd be Trisha, oldest to newest, Trisha, me, and then... Alex Michael. Probably Alex Michael. Yeah. 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 It is. But Alex is a lot of like, I just, you know, it's all the new A24 movie that's not coming out for six months or whatever. hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, one day, maybe we'll know the answer to that question. <laughs> to that very important question. Yeah. Um, I've recently been not watching a movie, but I watched The Queen's Gambit, finally. I got around really? to 2020 uh, and watched it. It had been on my list, but I kind of started it one day when it came out, and I was like, I'm not in the mood for this, and then never went back. And that was a good call now that I've seen the rest of it. But I really liked it. It was slow, took me a while to get into it. But a lot of just a lot of really good storytelling happening in it. And, you know, everyone knows this already. But uh, yeah, it was just really, really well done. I think great examples of subtext and creating like the inner life of a character in the audience where, you know, on you just watch Anya Taylor-Joy look and think, and I'm like, oh, I know exactly what she's thinking. She's thinking this because this happened to that person. I'm like, this is what this really means. And it's just very engrossing, kind of better call Saul Breaking Bad-ish, where the psychology of the character I was very involved in. And it was a great example of stakes and how the scale of stakes do not necessarily correlate to the emotional magnitude of those stakes and where it's like, it's like what's the worst thing that's going to happen she maybe won't be the best chess player but i'm on the edge of my seat and i'm just very involved in a way that you know epic action scenes don't have me being so i just really uh enjoyed it gorgeously shot the color palette i know people have talked but like very good color grading very good cinematography uh i enjoyed it a lot the queen's gambit on netflix if you haven't heard of it <laughs> <laughs> the thing you watched during the pandemic like yeah. just watched yeah i got there <laughs> and if you're watching on youtube go back and watch trisha's micro expressions during all of that <laughs> they're, they're very they're very telling <laughs> someday we should talk about the themes in that show or lack thereof see i was tra- okay interesting i wasn't sure how to read those micro expressions so i started looking away because i didn't want to be distracted but, well now we need to talk about it interesting okay interesting uh, yeah i i think i know what you mean trisha yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I also liked looking at it. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, put this on the list of things to potentially talk about <laughs> in the future, along with Home Alone next month as our yeah. holiday film for December and Patreon. Uh, like I said, yeah, maybe Princess Bride at some point. I don't know. We'll see. Let us know if you want 
uh, us to talk about True Detective and the What We're Watching format. Again, that's we did it with Loki Season 1 and Foundation and Third Thing in List. Or is it just those two? <laughs> Boba Fett. Boba, Boba Fett. Fett. Did we really do yeah. Yeah. We so, really yeah. did. We did, yep. we, we did a good Fett. one, y'all. We're trying to get trying to get a really good one in here. So potentially True Detective, the format is, yeah, for our $5 patrons. Week by week, we release an episode talking about our thoughts and analysis on each episode. So hit us up on Twitter, Patreon, Discord, Spotify, all the places. Let us know what you think. Uh, and this has been our auteur autumn season. This was really interesting. It, like happy it worked out that we were able to do an old-ish movie for each auteur and a new-ish one. And there were some unexpected uh, gems, I feel. Like I was listing, like, what are my favorites of, of this season in my head? And I, it was like, Priscilla was the movie I enjoyed the most and I knew the least about going into all of it. Um, so yeah, this has been... It's been a lot of fun. Noise. Noise. <laughs> <laughs> Noise. Call back. Remember when we talked about Shutter Island? And I Prometheus. do. I wow. really do. What a what a season. What a season. Some yeah. choices were made in this season. Yes. And here we are. Uh, thank you to our patrons for supporting this show and making it possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. If you want to help us out, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Let us know what you think. Uh, helps the show out. Say hi to us on Twitter, and we will see you soon if you're a Patreon uh, supporter. And if not, next season, happy holidays. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.